Darkly Splendid Abodes, the official podcast of Toronto Thelema, exploring, if you will, practical philosophy, from science and the workings of the mind to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. Stooping down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. Welcome to another deep dip, where we will be exploring a particular book more fully. Today we'll revisit the essay by Jack Parsons entitled, Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword. We'll look at the remaining chapters we hadn't gotten to in our previous discussion and explore more deeply its thesis of woman taking hold of the sword of freedom. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. Welcome back. Welcome back. Part two of our our little uh, talk on Jack Parsons' paper. This is the first... I don't know how you're going to cut these up when you publish them, but this is the first time we've done a part two. This is the first time we've uh, come back for a second sitting on something. Mm-hmm. So I can't ask you how the text struck you the first time you looked at it. <laughs> so well, that's you certainly our, can. Our, our, our slow uh, ease in is missing. Uh, off mic a month ago, we talked about the two definitions of sublimation, mm-hmm. was it? Did you want to say something about, you had a t- an idea that it meant two different things. Do you want to say what it is to sublimate? Yeah, I suppose what I was thinking of when I was uh, looking at this, because uh, I, I did a cursory search for the definition of sublimation, which turned up uh, something that I didn't think it was, because I think it was a scientific application of the term so i decided to dig a little deeper and sort of got the sense that it was something uh um to take something and make it sublime in the sense of like being beyond uh no longer just in the mundane sense or in the physical sense or whatnot so in this case if we're talking about sublimation of the sexual instinct that would be making it into something no longer actually um carnal so it would be uh, uh, the religious sublimation of the sexual instinct, in my mind, would have been to essentially take the sexual instinct, cover it with a bunch of shame, <laughs> and then uh, try to redirect it into a purified or rarefied form uh, towards God and towards the religious life so that uh, you are, don't you no longer realize that you're actually dealing with the sexual instinct anymore uh, and there's a whole bunch of this explicit in um, mystic practice throughout the centuries it's not what I uh, super interesting I, I had not th- heard thought of it as having that etymology before sublimity or, or sublimation coming from uh the sublime so that's weird i think for uh, not weird but interesting to me i think uh the there's a freudian definition where all actions become libidinous so you have your primary uh sexual urge 
Um, and then that gets redirected into other sorts of activities as you mature. And so the, the secret motivation behind all mature pursuits is, is libidinal. Um, and we, we sublimate these urges into, into our, our productivity and do, do kind of awesome, awesome stuff uh, <laughs> with um, these more primal instincts. So how is uh, Parsons using it here? At the beginning of chapter two, uh, the woman was insulted and affronted with the calumny. Calumny. The woman was insulted and affronted with the calumny of immaculate conception. Then, by this mystery mongering, a premium was placed on moral and spiritual sterility. This sublimation of the sex urge has been the basis of the power of the church and is the source of much of the psychosis rampant in the modern world. So both of the definitions we've come up with so far have this positive tinge, one of directing uh, uh, sexual energy towards uh, spiritual aspiration and the other of directing sexual energy towards all aspirations. soever. Mm -hmm. um, is, is there an essential denial of the sex instinct in both of those redirects? I think that's the problem that Jack is trying to emphasize here. Uh, when I was reading through this on the first reading recently, I was noticing the fact that, like, I was also noticing the term coming up in some of Crowley's uh, writing. I think it was in the Confessions, and uh, he was speaking in a positive light about, just as you're saying, with sublimation of things into uh, the spiritual and that sort of thing. Uh, sublimation of the sex instinct into the higher the higher realms of the soul, so to speak, but he was speaking of it in a positive light, and I thought that was an interesting contrast with the way that Jack Parsons is dealing with it here. So like you say, it does seem to be a little bit of a um, a negative light that he's dealing with it. Incidentally, calumny is the making of false and defamatory statements about someone in order to damage their reputation. Oh, cool. So slander. Cool. Calumny. 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 <laughs> calumny. Calumny. You calumnist? Calumny. Maybe calumnist? it is calumny. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the emphasis Calum is. Calumnist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, uh, but back to the topic it had, I suppose. Uh, no, this is good. And, and somewhere, it might have even been in the, Jerry, the new Jerry Cornelius book that I just got. But it says that Freud thinks all willing is derived from sex. Um, and... Jung thinks that sex is um, is one of the manifestations of willing, mm -hmm. and so Jung is in the Thelemic conception maybe doing a better job than Freud. And a couple of places we've glossed it, but in a couple of the readings we've read lately, Crowley accuses Freud of being like puerile or juvenile or something like this, of having uh, of being sex obsessed. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Cornelius may be right about this thing about how, and, and it, I think it's explicit in some of the literature that, that when Crowley's will is primary, he doesn't mean like the libidinal will. He means something more about going and, and expanding and the sex becomes 
Yeah, artifact. and some of the places that Crowley talks about this subject, he does seem to be saying that uh, the that sexuality and the sex instinct is a manifestation of will rather than the other way around. Or so it sounds like he's more on the the page with uh, Jung rather than Freud in that sense. Somewhere here, Parsons will say that um, it's really important to understand how important sex actually is but also how it's overemphasized mm-hmm. uh, in modern life. So this could be the, the turn that he's pointing at, this idea of, of sex as being seen as uh, um, I think primary he has a, and dangerous. He has a point, to too, because it's, uh, I mean, he's talking about it in the context of, uh, I mean, he's always talking about things in terms of the church when he's speaking negatively about the old times, uh, pretty much. Uh, so he's talking about the way that the church repressed the sexual instinct by making it shameful and uh, uh, trying to uh, sublimate it in the sense of repressing it shamefully and then channeling it in channeling that energy instead into the otherworldly at the expense of this world so completely negating this world and negating uh, uh, life and the physical realm and that sort of thing uh Last time we discussed this, I think we got through the first chapter and the preface, which were sort of about um, how, you know, governments are not comported towards freedom and talked about the importance of uh, liberty um, for human flourishing and the value of the project of liberalism. I I think Thelemites generally will be sympathetic <laughs> to these intuitions. They may share some of this uh, suspicion uh, that Jack has. Um, so, and if people, but if people need a refresher, I suggest they just read those first chapters mm-hmm. before, uh, because it's going to be faster than listening to our, re-listening <laughs> to our previous episode. But of course, our previous episode will still be available on the feed. Tell your friends. Uh, the second chapter here is going to be about what you're talking about, both about the unhealthy marriage of church and state that created, partially is partially responsible for creating this culture of oppression, um, but also um, I think most importantly about the 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 way in which church uses sex as a weapon, and then the question that I was left with reading it multiple times is, okay, so people are degraded by this church redefinition of of like weaponized sex of de, uh, uh, people are degraded by the idea that sex is degrading, uh, but how does that help? Like, what is the, what is the church? get out of this Mm -hmm. and so and i think the answer to that isn't until chapter three which is why i was having a hard time understanding it chapter two is all about the church and sex and chapter three is all about kind of like treat life as an adventure and what it would be like to be more liberated um but i think in chapter three is the resolution of this argument that starts in 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 chapter two um, mm-hmm. Yeah, in chapter three, uh, just as a brief overview, I suppose, um, in chapter three, it ends up being sort of the emphasis is on becoming self-reliant instead of like the idea being that religion is somewhere where we go to seek power that we don't have or we feel we don't have. And uh, we end up giving 
over ourselves to a different power, but he emphasizes in chapter three that it ends up being we are the ones that actually create that power in the first place, and we can learn how to be self-reliant instead of... Yeah, that's a. there's a great quote there that you're pointing at. Uh, the fundamental purpose of religion is to attain an identity with a power which we believe to be greater than ourselves, whose omnipotence and immortality we can share. Having achieved some sense of identity, we then feel that we can cope with the problems and attain ends with more confidence. The reliance on religion, as well as the reliance on property, can indicate a lack of self-reliance. And I marked this out just like you did, apparently. Um, and, and I think this thing about self-reliance is, is important. Um, in chapter four, Jack's going to talk a lot about um, the value of feminist movements to achieving this kind of relation. And he'll even go as far as to say, like, the liberation of mankind from this kind of spiritual slavery is the responsibility of women. They're the only, hmm. not, not because uh, they're morally obliged to do anything, but because they're the only people who can. They're the ones who can. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but in here, this thing about self-reliance, uh, ch charity starts at home, <laughs> um, is an important clue to what the solution to this is. If, if you become... Uh, a, a person who is self-admiring, self-confident, uh, believes in your own powers, you become less deferent um, to authorities. And so the value of this weapon of sex anxiety for the church is that it, it creates a problem that you need to go outside of yourself to solve. So, uh, and, and sex... The sex instinct is universal. All creatures experience this drive to, um, I won't say to procreate because that's not how we think of it. It's like a drive for, for pleasure and for social relation and to be... Uh, um, um, union. Yeah, reflected in, in union with another person. And so if that becomes morally unhealthy, uh, then everyone feels that unhealthiness and will look to a doctor in a frock to try and... Yeah, and uh, then people start to think it is only uh, about uh, reproduction and that sort of thing, and that's the argument that's used because we use clinical kind of uh, logical processes to work things out rather than being connected, as we will see later on in Chapter 4, to some of the more subconscious level things and the more earthy kinds of uh, uh, things that he appeals to women to really embrace... And this idea that sex is only for procreation, of course, uh, I wasn't going to read this, but I will now. The sexual perversion of Christianity becomes obvious when it is realized that the Holy Ghost, Sophia, is feminine, and the very tetragrammaton Yodhe means father, mother, son, daughter, and asserts the splendor of the biological order. How could life proceed from a strictly masculine creation? What miracle could possibly be superior to the miracle of copulation, conception, and gestation? So this quote that we read earlier about um, the uh, calumny against women, this idea of immaculate conception being somehow better than regular conception, is, uh, is, it becomes a really 
big deal because not only is sex only for procreation, procreation is best when it excludes <laughs> sex. Uh, the the greatest person ever was conceived without <laughs> this essential piece. Uh, so anyway, here's this uh, bit still in chapter three uh, where he talks explicitly about the turning away from the self towards the divine by virtue of sex anxiety. He says, if in our folly and fear, we will ascribe moral qualities to the lightning that strikes, to the stars that shine, to the tiger that kills, then we will not hesitate to assign them also to women who give and the man who takes. Thus, we will define God and found a religion. As man, self-castrated, self-frustrated, flees down the corridors of nightmare, pursued by monstrous machines, overwhelmed by satanic powers, haunted by visage, guilts, and terrors, all created out of his own imagination, he escapes into an absurdity, drowns his spirit in pretense, worships brass gods of power and tin gods of success. Then, shamed by his pretenses and frustrated by his self-denial, he projects his horror on imagined enemies, seeks release in scapegoats and false issues, thereby propitiating those bestial gods who have arisen from the shattered edelions of his spirit with sacrifices and blood. Holy smokes, that's a mouthful. <laughs> One wonders how I could have possibly missed it the first time. Uh, here's the important bit. Then shamed by his pretenses and frustrated by his self-denial, he projects his horror onto imagined enemies, seeks release in scapegoats and false issues. Mm -hmm. This is, uh, and, uh, um, and so this is the, the sort of turning towards mythology to... Uh, absolve oneself from sins which are only imaginary. So mm -hmm. this uh, is is the the mechanism of the of the weapon of the church that clamps down and and takes hold on a on a whole population, mm -hmm. um, it, it, and becomes very very uh, product productive in 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 Jack's view. Um, I and I. Th so uh, Jack will talk about how some of the consequences of um of this are he, he'll not only want to say that this is um a source of anxiety for people but it's that it's bad for society generally uh he'll say that um uh stis uh and uh and abortionists are the result of this dim view because people don't have proper sex education and so people are embarrassed by sexual diseases, so they don't seek treatment, maybe, and then they spread the sexual diseases, um, or, or they're um, embarrassed by uh, pregnancies which occur out of wedlock, and so they need to seek, they, they need to terminate those pregnancies. Uh, abortion is, uh, there's a dim view of it in Thelema because it interferes with the will of a soul to incarnate in the body they've chosen. There's, um, problems with this too i think that it's more complicated than just uh one shouldn't have uh, uh abortions uh, and I, I wonder if this is like in the context of this in 1950 mm. um or 1946 as the case may be um he may have been writing with the in a world where maybe abortion was not it was kind of done under under the radar in in kind of uh um clandestine circumstances rather than being legal it may have been illegal and performed in 
uh, trickier circumstances as a result. Maybe that's part of what this also refers to, because it sounds like that's what we're talking about with the STI thing, where it's uh, because people are pretending like they are they've never had sex before marriage, and they you know they maybe even pretend like they don't have sex except maybe that one time <laughs> with like a sheet between and all that sort of thing in order to have in order to procreate. Then uh, maybe that you know. It's a dishonesty with the self that leads to uh, um, leads to illegal actions needing to be taken, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess so. Um, I I do think we can acknowledge that there's um, there are things that exist in Thelema that we may not agree with. No, personally. you're absolutely right. You are absolutely and, uh, right, and I don't and deny so, that. Uh, Crowley was against abortion. Yeah. And uh, obviously nowadays uh, there's fierce debate over the subject. Uh, and I think a lot of people who identify with Thelema or are interested in Thelema are pro-abortion. Um, and it's a difficult subject. Um, yeah. Well, Crowley's against abortion because of this thing about souls choosing to incarnate and mm -hmm. interfering with the will of other beings. Uh, but there are also, um, uh, there's at least one secret paper you can read about um, how to breed an elemental. And mm -hmm. uh, what you do is you, you take a woman uh, and you sort of expose her to elemental symbols. Uh, like if you're trying to do Venus, you uh, put her in a green room and you make everything out of brass. Um, and uh, you sort of have to torture her for nine months in the by putting her in these very strange uh circumstances and what it does is it inspires the elemental spirit to uh inhabit the body of the um of the gestating fetus thus one imagines driving away the soul that was planning to incarnate in mm -hmm. that body so uh um, interfering in the same way as abortion does with the will of a of another person. Well, not in the same way, but in a, uh, well, <laughs> in a comparable way. In, in, it's yes. So it's, not, um, <laughs> but uh, but the important thing is that the that it it if the problem with abortion is that it stops mm -hmm. uh, uh, a soul from incarnating, um, whether this sounds whether like or not this practice is endorsed it's at least described and yeah. and uh and uh and uh without and not said like oh you should never ever do this yeah you know uh and then also um crowley talks about in the blue equinox quite openly about using uh profess houses as places to um uh for uh, pregnant women to reside and then they you can the prophet house can adopt your baby if you you know because there's an acknowledgement that unwanted pregnancy is a problem that um parenting against your will like surprise parenting is a massive impediment to life process you know it really really changes the direction of 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 your existence and so um if you don't want to do that then Crowley's offering you uh, a, a solution that he thinks, at least, is a is a real solution, uh, which is something that the pro life people do not do. I don't think. <laughs> I myself uh, think abortions are great, and people should have more of them. <laughs> Population <laughs> problem is a real problem, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but uh, but the th the thing is, uh, when it comes to niggly little issues like this, like the the question of oh, should people or should people not 
uh, get abortions or or uh, questions like um, who's allowed to get married and who isn't. It seems so up to individual decision, right? Like Thelemites can tell other Thelemites why in Thelema abortion is unhealthy, but why is, is thought of as unhealthy, but why would... Uh, you know, a secular political leader tell an entire population. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a, unless of course they were appealing to a large swath of that population for votes. Yeah. Like maybe, but I think this is better. I think what Jack says about, uh, making people anxious and deferent, mm-hmm. uh, and, and desperate just for the sake of making them feel bad. Like this is a, this, this question of sex anxiety is something that affects everyone. Yeah. And so if we can make strict rules around sex, uh, then uh, we then people feel defeated and, uh, and are much less likely to express themselves as individuals. And we don't have to deal with a healthy population. Uh, we can deal with a repressed uh, lump in sort of population, yeah, which is which population. It, which make which is something we already know the the tools to, how to deal with. Not that you couldn't have a government that ruled over free, confident people, but those tools would need to be developed. All the existing tools are for ruling over uh, depressed masses, and so mm-hmm. so these these things uh, the 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 reason to uh, the reason to make legislation uh, that that uh, is like pro abortion is to get a bunch of populist votes, you know, to be seen as the good guy. And the, re- and the reason to um, oppress abortion is to distress and torture the population. <laughs> uh, there might be real reasons to do both of those things that are morally justifiable, but I don't think governments make decisions based on values. I think they make decisions on political expediency, and, and yeah, I think Jack's if, right If values here. ever come into it, they eventually go out the door in, in favor of uh, expediency and convenience and whatnot. I, I just, it's, it's been so helpful to, to, to get that in, this thing mm-hmm. about uh, imagined demons, because there's, it, it's always been a question for me about how these things become issues. Like, somebody might hate abortions, but that's a conversation they can have with their spouse. Mm-hmm. Why does it become a public conversation? This exactly, is why. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of worth mentioning as well, this this also gives us a chance to address the overall arcing, the overarching theme of the paper as well, which is that uh, these institutions and, and governments and and approaches to things have been around they're as old as time practically mm-hmm. uh, they go way back into our past as human beings and uh, the alternative being freedom has only been around for a couple hundred years or so um, so he's looking at it as being these these things are still these old ways are still reaching to us and uh, restricting us and, and oppressing us from the middle ages uh, and the freedom thing is still in its birth pangs in a lot of ways. So it's still trying, we haven't struck out and actually created real freedom per se. Uh, there's, it, he, he addresses later on the various personages between the middle ages and ourselves who have, uh, uh, essentially tried to dismantle the old ways and define a new way, but it's still, it hasn't, it hasn't taken or it hadn't taken. That's right. 
here's just a couple more quotes around this, which I think flesh it out a little bit, although I think we've done a good job. Uh, as I mentioned above, sublimated sex has been the source of power for the Christian church. Sex and sex neurosis are fundamental factors in the attitude of modern man, and these three facts give sex a place of prime importance in our liberal examination of society. Uh, and then a little further down the page, the enjoyment of a natural urge is defined as a crime. Young persons thus enjoying the urge in the wonder of the beginning are burdened with a sense of guilt and shame. They are classed with common criminals. Um, and then uh, further along, what's the consequence of this, of, of making young people who are, you know, just learning about their bodies and everything else, what's the consequence of... Uh, saddling them with this kind of shame. In this childish folly of sexual possession, each man and each woman hates and fears every other man and woman as a potential despoiler or some joke by the ever-present spectators of jealousy and suspicion. Um, so uh, the population not only becomes homogenous in its anxiety, but um, people become uh, isolated by being suspicious mm -hmm. of, of, of everyone around them and the, the feeling of um, there's something about becoming a, a, a homogenous mass that makes you even more afraid to express yourself honestly. It's like you're ashamed so you need the support of the crowd and then crowds are powerful because they can work together um, but uh, individuals with in that crowd are uh, are unable to express anything um, that's dissenting because they're uh, or not even dissenting but but unique mm -hmm. uh, because they're they're so afraid of being judged either positively or negatively by their fellows. Yeah, and then just uh, uh, one thing that you excluded from that was it is possible that the application of two old axioms that you love one another, and that you do unto others as you would have others do unto you, might go a long way in helping us solve our sexual problems. The application of these maxims in a sexual relations is easy and pleasant. If firmly established, the principles might spread to other areas of human intercourse. I think that's worth noting as well, because yeah. is it exactly what you're talking about. Like when you become an individual within a crowd, even if initially you're, you're kind of bought into that crowd, your individuality has to be repressed to be part of that crowd at some point. Um, but if we learn to actually express love in the way that he's talking about with that final thought, then uh, we could actually appreciate each other's uniqueness instead of having to uh, uh, treat it like some kind of threat. People can think this is true or not true, but you're right. In here, there's the idea that that um, homogeny and the the kind of community we have now is based on is actually based on mutual suspicion, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, whereas individuality. Would the consequence of of individuality would be a greater mutual respect and and cooperation? Uh, it's in, almost a callback to what we saw in the Tao Te King, where um, to achieve one thing, you pursue the opposite. Mm. You know, Ra yeah. rather than pursuing community by denying individuality and kowtowing to yeah. everyone else in the community, you become an individual who can then work with other individuals. Mm -hmm. um, 
the rest of this chapter um, has a lot of recommendations for how to overhaul um, uh, sex. Uh, and I was saying um, last time that I thought things were not better now. And you kind of gave me like low key heck about that because, you know, people. Uh, uh, we're not uh we don't have uh, sodomy laws <laughs> and uh and um uh and, and divorce although not easy in canada it, it it's certainly more frequent is certainly more common and yeah more acceptable socially because i mean you could be a pariah within your own family back in the day um so i wouldn't say that it's better i would say that it's different um and i think that's the difficulty with that kind of thing is that it's you know you feel like you have to say well is it better or worse or is it somewhere in between and it's like it's a little more gradient than that i think well if it's not better then it's interesting that a lot of parsons recommendations have been mm -hmm. have been taken uh yeah. uh this thing about uh you know trying not to shame your children over their uh, over yeah. their sexuality, this thing of, uh, you know, we know that divorce is bad, but loveless homes are worse, and so divorce laws should be loosened up, uh, relax pornography laws, and, yeah. and, you know, all these things uh, have been done. So if it's not better, then the question is, is that because there's been covert attempts to end around the relaxation of these strictures? Is it because Parsons is wrong in his diagnosis and recommendations? Or is it because um, t tweaking the mechanism doesn't actually cure the underlying anxiety? <laughs> and, uh, and, and people still internally live in the old world, despite interacting in a new one yeah i mean it, it seems to me that uh uh probably there's a, still an instinct towards exactly i like the way that you put that with the idea that uh um becoming part of the crowd essentially is like based on uh i forget exactly the wording you used for that uh but no, the suspicion know. uh it's based on suspicion it's not based on uh um actually love and respect per se it's actually more based on suspicion well, here Parson says, in this childish folly of sexual possession, each man and woman hates and fears every other man and woman. Uh, yeah, so and I think that's that's, that's something Parson that yeah comes underneath the surface. What initially becoming part of the group, it's be it's often because you hate and are suspicious of those outside of the group or those that are uh, seen as being in opposition to the group. And then once you're in the group, yeah, any sense of individuality must be suppressed in order to maintain your position within that group. So there's inevitably going to be some suspicion and hatred that comes out of that. But uh, yeah, um, I feel like that's still ever present. And I think that's going to be an ongoing uh, thing to heal and redirect in humanity because it's just so natural for us to fall into those things. You want to be part of, you want to be part of the crowd, or if you don't want to be part of the crowd, you want to be safe, mm -hmm. and you want to feel like you're part of the right. You want to feel like you're on the side of the right. Like uh, people will say, I don't want to end up being on the wrong side of history, and it's right. like, I mean, you could examine what 
you know what that actually means and everything like that as well but it's uh, very difficult to know how far into the future to project yeah and it's like, I don't how things are actually going to be seen i don't <laughs> you want know? to be in the wrong i don't want to be in the wrong side of history tomorrow in 10 years yeah. in 100 years <laughs> um be, and the, and the further into the future you want to preserve your reputation the more murky it becomes as mm-hmm. you're saying so uh um people do just kind of live inside that overton window and uh, when it's moving as quickly as it is now, that is a source of anxiety for a lot of people. Um, but uh, um, but yes, the, so this moves us very nicely. It's almost as if uh, um, some conscious entity were crafting the course of our conversation. <laughs> Jack Parsons. <laughs> um, this moves us very nicely into chapter three, which is all about this adventure of living and living life as an ad- adventure. Uh, what do you want to say about it? So in chapter three, I feel like Parsons, uh, maybe we can compare notes for this, but basically Parsons is describing how uh, religion gives us the impression that human beings are like uh, God's little children. Uh, and we have this feeling that we're special and that we have a special place in the universe and that sort of thing. And he's kind of dismantling that and saying there's not actually any reason to think of ourselves as anything other than just beasts from the wild who have suddenly become aware of ourselves and uh, have begun to actually redirect our energies into uh, the things that we think are productive. And as a result of this, there's no real reason to think that we're naturally wise and naturally kind and naturally all these things that uh, religion would have us believe, um, but that there is a lot of proof to the contrary that we are quite savage creatures. Um, and I think we're probably capable of both things. But his uh, upshot to this is going to be that it is not religion that we are dependent upon, although we have traditionally been dependent upon it to give us some kind of feeling of power and some feeling of confidence, some self-confidence. Instead, that was that power and self-confidence was always within us to begin with. And he's encouraging us to seek out that self-reliance that is kind of uh, our birthright, so to speak, and that we can pursue instead of religion, which becomes a system of dependence, as previously described. It's a, it's a bit of a weird way of parsing it, because in the first paragraph of chapter 3, he'll say, uh, there's no reason to believe that he is naturally good and kind, meaning, like, human beings. Uh, there is much evidence that he is by nature cruel, cowardly, lustful, avarice, and treacherous. Uh, he stops short, I think, of saying evil. I'm just scanning through it now. Um, but we think of good as contrasted against evil or um, against bad. Like if you're, if you want to do good and bad, like having good things is good and uh, and not having good things is bad. Um, and he'll go on to define good and evil by his terms. Yeah, so it's 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 it is weird to start by saying that like there's no evidence that people are good. There's plenty of evidence that people are bad, and then later on say 
well, good and evil are only about useful and unuseful. Uh, I feel like it's a strategic avoidance of using those terms here, though, because uh, we have those associations with mm -hmm. those things. But the fact of the matter is, I mean, if we look at Nietzsche, for instance, uh, the idea that um, if we were strong, we would just take what we want. If we are uh, intellectual, it's because we are not strong enough to take what we want. So we use our intellect to be clever and find our way to what we getting what we want by cunning. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I would argue that that's still getting what you want. You right. Know? So in this case, it's like, yeah, we're cruel, we're cowardly, we're lustful, we're avaricious, we're treacherous. Those are ways that people have traditionally gotten what they want. And you can't really deny it looking at history. I think it's difficult to lump cowardice in there. I yeah, think, I think even you even can, the treacherous have to have a certain amount of courage in their treachery. Yeah, but uh, I think cowardice is aptly put in there. Just I mean, in this case, it's it's emphasizing the fact that we're just not naturally courageous, as we like to think of ourselves by by the point that mm -hmm. he's getting uh, at. But not only that, I would also argue that cowardice can keep you alive, where uh, you know being brave can cause you to sacrifice yourself. Right. Strategic, strategic uh, courage rather than just fighting every lion that comes out of the wilderness. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and I, mean, I think the import of this is that um, people are not, that these, these kinds of religious values of um, charity and self-sacrifice and uh, uh Chastity as defined by, it's, it's different at Thelema, but chastity as defined by uh, the Christian church. These things are not inherent virtues of man. So if you fail in them, you're not um, unique in failing to live up to your, uh, to quote unquote, live up to your mm -hmm. um, birthright. Uh, there is no birthright. And in fact, there is no <laughs> failure because... <laughs> Um, what's natural is is actually something else, mm -hmm. um, and so it, it's kind. Of, he kind of begins with the antidote to the trying to give an antidote to the sex anxiety that we've we've seen before. Um, but it almost sounds like he's saying people aren't special. Like there's no evidence that we're, you know, God's vice regents upon the earth. Mm -hmm. But uh, but then he goes on to say. In what way we are special by virtue of we create what is by, special by virtue of of our ability to the, the fact that we've kind of fallen ass backwards by evolution into reason and science mm -hmm. and that we can do reason and that we have science. Um, never mind that earlier in the paper he's carrying a torch for anti-rationalism and <laughs> and uh, trying to uh, throw the positivists. <laughs> under the bus as being our artificial scientists reason can't explain everything but now he says the only thing special about people is that we can do uh <laughs> we can do uh reason well there's a line in there where he says that uh, where there where we don't find reason or meaning to things we create it yeah um to what extent is that the problem of <laughs> of religion uh, being pointed back at. Yeah, I don't know that it's a necessarily a problem. It's something we'd naturally do that he's he's referring to, whether we're creating religion by uh, making meaning by creating religion or uh, otherwise. Now, what does this uh, mean for us? Because we're going go to go on to talk about the um, uh, 
the value of life as a as an adventure, the value of freedom, uh, the value of of self discovery. But I, I admit that I sort of glossed this chapter because. Being the most polemic of the four chapters, it seemed to me the least important, which I know sounds weird, but I thought <laughs> I think I thought that the Thelema stuff was dealt with better in other places. Although there's nothing wrong with this, it's it's good. But what's the Darren? What's the structure of of this? How do we get from this idea of like man is the uniquely rational animal, uh, and you know, good and evil are just uh, uh, relative terms yeah uh, how do we get from this idea of man as a rational animal to good and evil are relativistic <laughs> ideas to um, to the this idea of of discovering your own individuality and the adventure of that what's the structure here well I mean if I can be allowed to infer uh, it seems to me that he's pointing out that uh, just by what I was saying with the uh, the concept of um uh, i'll just read the quote it if there is no other reason and no other significance man himself has on occasion created reason and significance standing as the maker of his gods in a garden made fruitful by his own creative power and if i as i say if i can be allowed to infer i think what he gets at here is he he's pointing out the fact that we've created these religions and uh, these gods and Therefore, we can recreate things in our own image. So we don't have to rely on the old ways. We can recreate things in a more honest and authentic way where we can really become true to ourselves and present with those things that we tried to repress in past centuries. And thereby, we can find true self-reliance and this will uh, this will channel our real creative energies. So this goes back to the individuality thing, being true to yourself and not repressing and restricting yourself in order to be part of a crowd, and uh, being able to find proper expression for those things. This is uh, he he. Some of this seems to be a little bit more inspired because there are places where he's marking out a rational argument in plain language and places where he gets quite carried away in the mm -hmm. loveliness of the poetry. And I think it's to his virtue that he lets himself do this. But uh, um, all nature partakes of the eternal sacraments of life and death, ebb and flow of creation and destruction, regeneration. These are the harmonies of eternity that change forever and never change. The cry of the baby is echoed in the tolment of the nova. Men's sons and seasons pass and return again. The spate of semen is one with the jet of the stars that men call the Milky Way. Um, and so I've answered my own question by actually just reading the entire paragraph. <laughs> but I was I was thinking that there, there's some uh, mystical association being drawn here, you know, between uh, the... Uh, human uh, course of life and the human orgasm and then the creative power of the cosmos um, th there it does seem to me that there's something special about man even though he just said there wasn't but of course it begins with all nature partakes of the eternal sacraments of life yeah I think this is where so, I was originally when I was originally going over this for our first talk uh, I was thinking of it uh, it seems to me that this is where he's really introducing the idea of 
both mysticism and magic, but not in so many, not in those those specific words. He's kind of alluding to them. So he's uh, he's in the passage that you've marked out here. It's um, pointing out the correspondence and connection between things. So this is like mysticism in the sense of uh, recognizing your oneness with the entire universe. But it's also magic because of the fact that you're going to be working with all those other things and engaging with all those other things. And he's going to go on through here. We are one with Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Shakespeare of one blood with Moses, Lao Tzu, and Newton. Uh, it's a weird three. Well, <laughs> Newton's an alchemist, so maybe the other two are alchemists. Maybe that's why they get lumped together. But the idea here is that when he talks about reason and science, he uh, thinks of uh, humanity and this kind of artistic inspiration like if science if science and reason are what has explanatory force then all these beauties and arts and uh and inspirations have to be um have to be part of reason and science maybe mm -hmm. uh, and so that uh that 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 when he says the only thing special about people is reason and science he's using that broadly to mean that well this includes our ability to create lots of different types of of stuff uh yeah he gets once he, once he gets into the idea of art and science they seem to be the twin things uh which give us real expression because science is knowledge and uh art is expression it's uh being able to take the knowledge of things and and your understanding of things and actually find expression for things um so it's it's the creative side of it mm-hmm there's uh, this here, um, the voice of the wind, the poignancy of music, the shout of thunder, all cry out to man, daring him to know himself. Sunlight, sea, and stars, and the splendor of a naked woman are the signs and witnesses of a covenant that is forever. We know these things. We know them with the only certainty that is ever given us. So the ability to regard beauty is some part of this, too to be um, involved actively as a, as a participant in, in our lives and, uh, and these, these things that are primal and inspiring and natural and, and, and real, uh, these are the things that give us the sort of magical <laughs> inspiration uh, mm. to, to create poetry and to have spiritual experiences like Shakespeare and Lao Tzu. And it seems to be the way that he's trying to balance things as against the positivists, where it's just purely empirical. So um, he does believe in science, he does believe in the rational mind, combined with that more visceral uh, level of things. Is it important that these are all things which require a certain amount of courage, maybe? I mean, the voice of the wind, the poignancy of music, the shout of thunder the daring to know himself. The first three things are sort of like things that can be regarded and enjoyed, but then the fourth thing in that sentence is, is daring to know himself, to, to interrogate internally, which I actually do think takes courage. Mm -hmm. Sunlight, sea, and stars, and the splendor of the naked woman are the signs and witnesses of a covenant forever. There's something about um, the first three, again, being like frontiers mm -hmm. and... Uh, understanding sort of like the the bigness of something being confronted and then uh, the splendor of the the naked woman is like 
I mean, we've talked all in, about um, sex anxiety for an hour and a quarter. There's something about uh, the danger implied by the libidinal instinct. Is, is it important? I think it might be important that these are all like things that you need courage mm -hmm. to address. And it almost seems like those are the results of the courage of engaging with the universe. You have the, the uh, resultant appreciation and full uh, union with the beauty of the universe thereby. And now he's going to bring it back to the political level, um, thinking that he's sort of proved his point about, um, about the life of adventure and the courage to interrogate the self. Uh, maybe he doesn't have to prove his point. He just has to inspire us to make us think that this sounds like fun, which is why it <laughs> becomes so poetic there for a few minutes. There's like a, a sexiness and a, um, and, a, and a sense of enthusiasm <laughs> that might come through in that poetic Yeah, language. and I mean, I guess if he's going to be arguing against just pure rationalizing of things, then he can't just use a purely rational argument for it. So he has to go off on some kind of a tangent to some extent. Uh, paragraph 13 of this third section. We are now in the midst of a tremendous battle of forces contending for dominion over the mind and spirit of man. It is not, unfortunately, a battle between good and evil, between freedom and tyranny, but rather the struggle of dogma against dogma and authority versus authority. The contenders are fascism and communism. Each is a doctrine alien and hostile to the ideal of freedom. Each says we must choose between one or the other, and each in reality is identical. Each demands the absolute enslavement of the individual and the abnegation of the intellect and the subjugation of the will. Um, it's weird, isn't it, how the um, the leftists continue to accuse the rightists of fascism mm -hmm. and uh, the rightists who have always accused the leftists of communism are actually now maybe starting to accuse the leftists of fascism, <laughs> <laughs> uh, too. Yeah, so going back to what we were saying earlier, it does seem like this is not changed. It's just changed in terms of the verbiage that's used. Yeah, uh, there's a question of, again, of how, how much better things have gotten. Mm -hmm. I think we still get stuck with a lot of groupthink and partisanship uh, that makes everybody, you know, really stupid, uh, <laughs> that, um, you know, you, you vote for one guy just to get rid of the other guy and you, um, can't interrogate anybody's values because, um, even though like, so I'm going to vote for X just to get rid of the other guy, but like, I can still disagree with X on certain points, but if I disagree one with X on certain points, it's going to make other people suspicious of X and less likely to vote for him and that, that weakens my chances of getting rid of the other guy. Uh, so, um, so, so we, we lose the ability to interrogate our own figureheads and can only punch across the aisle. Um, and, uh, this is sort of problematic and creates the kind of same mass consciousness that mm. the religious anxiety does. 
Um, so the idea of freedom and its interconnection, or its its firm connection with the idea of individuality and uh, the expression of the individual uh, is something that still hasn't found a real uh, solid uh, liveliness in day-to-day life yet. It's because, yeah. no longer explicit Stalinists fighting explicit Nazis. <laughs> so, like, I think that that's better. Yeah. <laughs> I do think that um, uh, that the, the political movements we have now are... Uh, on both sides of the aisle healthier than the political movements that Parsons is talking about, but they're still unhealthy in their uh, homogeny. And there's still a tendency towards the exact same thing that he's talking about with uh, uh, the struggle of dogma against dogma, authority versus authority. This is cool, which I'm not reading for any reason other than that I think it's interesting. Uh... Come unto me, goes the old harlot's song. Come unto me, you weary, heavily laden. Surrender your intolerable burden of freedom, and I will fill your mouths with miracles and your bellies with food. (laughs) Come with me. I will confound your enemies and show you paradise. Look, you do not even have to change a name. Only keep the letter and deny the spirit, for the letter giveth life. She is harvesting the nations now, that old whore, for an appointment in a place called Armageddon harvesting the nations he means uh in revelation where um uh the grim reaper who by the way is jesus <laughs> uh, um uh reaps the harvest of the earth and puts all the blood of the saints into the wine press um and then uh when he means talking about the old whore and and she uh the old harlot he means babylon now, and I would argue that, I mean, it's Babylon in the book of Revelations, but the, he does come back to Babylon later on as a freeing force, whereas I think this is uh, in a sly uh, way saying that this is like the the illusion of these things uh, pre- preferred by by what he's referring to as the uh, fascism and the communism. Yeah, well, so this is why I like about it is because it's weird for a Thelemite to do this in this way. Um, because for us, these symbols are very, very sacred. Mm-hmm. And he, you're right, he goes back to the sacredness he's later on. them at the moment. Uh, but for here, he says, uh, harvesting the nations rather than harvesting the earth. And um, in the book of Revelation, after the passage that talks about Babylon, the mystery of Babylon is explained. And it says, okay, so the woman is a city. And the 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 when they say Babylon the Great has fallen, they don't mean the woman, they mean the nation. Mm. And uh, so for him to say harvesting the nations is cool. Uh, so the the harlot that comes for us is not the whore of Babylon riding upon the beast. It's political partisanship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the literal nation for which that symbol used to be, that symbol used to be a euphemism for national corruption and uh, distance from God, ironically. And now uh, he's using it to mean national corruption in terms of like the church and state being two in bed together. Mm-hmm. That's all the quotations I had from that chapter. Did you have anything else you wanted to do? Yeah, let me just double check here real quick. I mean, we have the, uh, he's establishing his ideas of good and evil. Mm-hmm. That's probably worth touching on briefly. Well, we talked about it a little bit, but sure, if you want to read the quote, I yeah, think it's Yeah, just to read quote. the quote directly, because I think it's worthwhile uh, for one or two things. Nothing is of its nature evil. 
and nothing is of its nature good. Evil is only excess. Good is simple balance. And I think that's kind of an interesting way of parsing it, and I'm not sure that I totally would, uh, that it all comes together or whatnot, but uh, all things are subject to abuse and likewise susceptible to beneficial use. Balance does not consist in denial or excess in indulgence. So balance does not consist in denial, um, which balance being good, denial does not produce balance necessarily. Uh, excess is not produced specifically from indulgence. Balance can only be obtained by exceeding. And he uses the term exceeding, going back to excess. So I think it's uh, it's like, is he doing that because he's trying to show that what he's defining as evil, being excess, is necessary to achieving balance? So he's um, not being that strict with his etymology here, and it's because he wants to reference the book of the law. Um, when he says exceeding, he means uh, he's referring to chapter one of the book of the law, and I can't pull any quotes off the top of my head, but uh, um, but, exceed. but be, be strong, O man, thus can thou bear more joy is kind of the idea. Um, there's also something that says like exceed by delicacy or something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's going to Crowley uh, here, and I think it might be... Book one, Velmegai, where it talks about the importance of balance. Also, one of our duties is to develop in due harmony all the faculties which we possess. Mm-hmm. So we don't restrict one uh, in order to balance it with the others. We develop all in due proportion. Um, but Crowley was going to some Golden Dawn teaching uh, that was to do, and, and is mirrored in our holy books as well, that was to do with uh, um, unbalanced mercy is yeah. but uh, weakness that would allow evil to occur and, uh, and unbalanced uh, severity is but tyranny. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then, uh, but also Crowley's going to Nietzsche, who has these two definitions of good and bad versus good and evil. And the idea of evil is a way for underclasses to get revenge against Mm -hmm. people who have a lot of goods. Yeah, and the way that he's describing, the way that Parsons is describing balance is uh, uh, further fleshed out in the following statement. The elemental forces in man's nature are so tremendous that they can only be balanced by an ultimate self-expression. To place limitations and restrictions on this nature is to build a wall of plaster around a sun. So I think, yeah, he is getting at the idea that balance meaning full expression. So not just uh, like uh, restricting certain things and then promoting certain things, uh, which is an unbalance. There's, There's a way people talk about emotions as being positive and negative. Mm-hmm. And I've even heard smart people say this, say like negative emotions like anger and yeah, uh, which tend toward violence or something. And uh, people will say doing pop psychology of like they'll talk about honoring their feelings, like just acknowledge this is how you feel now and move through it. But it, it, it doesn't include the idea of expression. The idea of honoring is sort of just like passive acknowledgement and then wait till it goes away on its own yeah and uh he's gonna say 
I think you're going to talk to Edward Mason about anger the next time you speak. And that will be an interesting conversation because uh, in reference to this, because what he means is you don't you don't achieve balance by restricting. You achieve balance by full expression of all of your mm-hmm. faculties. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with anger. That is just something that you're going to be feeling, and mm-hmm. by treating it as something that's wrong, that's where you know any any time you're repressing something, it's not just going to go away. I don't think it's true that I've never regretted anything I've said in anger. But I think I've rarely regretted anything I've said in anger, (laughs) and I've often regretted times when I got really mad and didn't say anything. Well, man, I've regretted things that I've said when I was really excited and happy. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's like, so I don't think, I think it's like there's potential in anything. I think, I think that's, that's worse for me is when I get carried away by enthusiasm. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Um people get way more trampled under by my just like <laughs> by my just readiness to be there than they yeah. do by my uh by my anger which like everyone else in our culture i repress to an unhealthy degree mm-hmm. uh so that yeah it's really it's really my my joyful moments of like oh man it'll be so funny if i say this where i've hurt way more people's feelings doing that than uh than just like honestly telling them to fuck off because they were being abusive yeah i think it's it's helpful to think in terms of potentialities like okay you you feel anger that has potentialities it's the way that it finds express and expression that can be destructive or uh useful to you but it needs to find expression that's just part and parcel of it. Any of these feelings need to find expression. And if you're repressing them, I hope you're doing it for a particular goal because uh, you may be able to find some way to channel it if you're doing it properly, but otherwise it's going to find its own expression in some way. So again, I think like the whole idea of him uh, touching on the subject of good and evil is to deconstruct it from the old ways of our tendencies of th- seeing it. As you mentioned, like even intelligent, uh, educated people will tend to think of uh, quote unquote negative emotions and that sort of thing. And we'll have these uh, Judeo Christian cultural mores uh, that we're not even conscious of. I mean, even within the Thelemic community, we'll naturally have those still kind of, you know, in the shadow realms of ourselves and in our our presumptions and preconceptions and things and that's a gradual process to deconstruct those things but it's an important process nietzsche is going to say that christianity is explicitly a conspiracy against the roman aristocracy to you know destroy the middle class by virtue of like replacing them all with uh slaves and the way you do this is by making charity the primary virtue so that people who have lots of things feel bad about having them and people who don't have things are morally right just by virtue of their poverty. Mm-hmm. And so the over the course of several generations, you have this class flip where people who live this virtue of charity by virtue of like having to, because if they don't support each other, they'll starve to death. Um, become the the dominant class over the people who have the natural virtue of of having things and uh this is nietzsche's criticism of of christianity and uh Crowley in a way follows this uh to uh a, a, a degree but he has his own thoughts as well and so 
another thing that that Jack might mean when he says we don't balance by restricting is that uh, you know like a maximum wage is <laughs> is not an answer or mm. like you know if some people have gifts we don't get equality by restricting gifted people and preventing them from uh, from expressing what's natural or by mm-hmm. uh, you know artificially giving uh, more room to people who are less gifted or something. Everybody has to be given the room to exceed in their own areas. Yeah, I guess you could sort of see it as like, for instance, uh, with uh, uh, if you were taking the path of the AA system or just with Thelema in general, there is, as we've talked about before, there is an emphasis on the fact that the rational mind needs to be kind of worked past you have to go beyond it but there's a lot of work especially in the early stages developing the rational mind and the intellect and that sort of thing so it's not that we would want to repress that side and concentrate on other areas it's that we would want to flourish that area to its fullest as well as flourishing our weaker areas so we're exceeding in that sense i suppose that's one way to look at that that's right this um this thing that kant does where he explores the limits of reason uh the critique of pure reason right the limits of the ration what the rational can do Mm -hmm. Uh, a mutual friend of ours used to say you don't transcend the game of tennis without playing it Mm -hmm. you actually have to know what all these rules of logic are before you can understand what you can and can't do with them trans-rationalism or post-rationalism or like post-enlightenment thinking is not the same as anti-rationalism you mm-hmm. know y- y- uh, and, yeah it's an important distinction yeah in anything that you're developing yeah you want to be able to you want to be able to imprint the rules into yourself so that you don't have to think of them and uh that way then you're ready to transcend them why are women the special solution to this problem <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is where we're going to be moving on to uh, chapter four, where he does appeal to women directly, and that's mm-hmm. where our emphasis goes. Now, are you looking at something just before we move on to that, or is that no, no? I'm, at? I'm, I'm sort of trying to set us up to move on to the next place. Yeah, and this because... starts to feel like the the goal of this entire paper is to set up this whole uh, appeal to women and heralding Babylon, the coming of Babylon. That's right. We're in a bad place and we're in a bad place because we have sex anxiety and it would be better if life were an adventure and people were individuals. And in order to become individuals, we need uh, the help from the uh, <laughs> not only that, the but beautiful redeemer of the race. Yeah, throughout this paper, he's emphasized the fact that in the old times, all these things that he's complaining about with the church and all this sort of thing is because it's been up to men and they've been repressing women and making women feel ashamed of their natural abilities and whatnot. Uh, so the the answer going forward is not to continue with this folly, of course. It's also not to repress or restrict uh, the strengths of men in favor of a matriarchy where women become the ones who are in power. It's about balance. So again, mm-hmm. what he's describing as this good, it's exceeding with both sides of the the coin that he's, he's uh, defining here and putting things into an equality going forward. There's a couple things going on simultaneously. There's just saying that women are the special solution to this problem. Um, there's an attempt to 
explain what that solution is, how women are employed, if you like, to solve this problem. And then uh, at, at the same time, there's this kind of two-pronged approach to uh, to enlisting women to solve this problem. And the two prongs are, are sort of a, a flattery that says, like, I, Jack Parsons, understand your position. <laughs> and then um, sort of a uh, an imprecation or something, like... Uh, I know this is a lot of work, but it'll be better for everyone if you take it on. So please, please, please uh, and, and don't do the Nietzschean re revenge thing. Uh, forgive men and then help them get better at yeah, stuff. Yeah, there, there is a real feeling here that he does actually uh, have a strong appreciation for women and what they have that we and himself do not have... Uh, the strengths that they have and the things that they bring to the table. There's also a sense that um, I think uh, in our first discussion, I had set things up by giving a really brief kind of um, reference to Jack Parsons' life and times and all that sort of thing. And uh, one of the things that was obviously very important to him was the fact that he at one point invoked Babylon in the desert. And then he was trying to bring her forth in the flesh, and he believed that he did so in the form of Marjorie Cameron. Uh, so there's obviously like a very important aspect of that for him. He also channeled uh, what he believed to be the fourth chapter of the Book of the Law, which was the chapter of Babylon. And uh, so it's clearly this is an important thing that's kind of uh, in the background of his mind as he's writing this. Somewhere in the world today, there is a woman for whom the sword is forged, and somewhere there is one who has heard the trumpets of the new age and who will respond. Uh, I, I just, from context, I assumed he hadn't met Cameron yet. I yeah, think that either someone went this that he's going to say that this is later on he's going to think of this as being maybe prophetic that mm -hmm. he predicted he would meet Cameron. Uh, it may also be alluding text. to uh, uh, like a magical child that he had helped bring forth. Mm -hmm. So that's a possibility as well. I think I think there was something to that effect as well, where he felt like there would be somewhere out there there'd be uh, uh, somebody born who was that person. So this is. Uh I, I, the start of this is so um, sort of strange to me, maybe because I'm not a woman, although I'm also not a gender essentialist, so I don't assume that all women have had the same type <laughs> of uh, experience. But uh, let's begin at the beginning. It is to you, O woman, beautiful redeemer of the race, whom I address this chapter. That which stirs in you now is not madness, not sin, not folly, but life. The new life is the joy and the fire that will beget a new race create a new heaven and a new earth. When you were a child, did not the wind and sun speak to you? Did you not hear the mountain's voice, the voice of the river and of the storm? Have you not heard the whisper of the stars and the ineffable voice in silence? Have you not gone naked in the forest with the wind on your body and felt the caresses of Pan? Your heart has swollen with the spring, blossomed with the summer, and saddened with the winter. These things are the covenant, and in them is the truth that is forever." Um, you know, I, you've only, uh, sort of, as we're recording this, only sort of put out one of these so far, another one to come tomorrow. If this show ends up having any kind of an audience, I would love for the women in the audience to kind of let us know whether they did in fact 
uh, hear the wind and sun speak to them, <laughs> uh, hear the mountain's voice, the voice of the river and the storm. Like, I don't uh, assume that I know what that means. <laughs> um, it seems to be all, sort of fundamental to what is going to happen mm-hmm. next. So, yeah, we're getting Jack's perspective and his belief that he really understands. Uh, uh, his argument hinges on his uh, on his ability to get a sympathy from his audience and say mm. like uh, you women know <laughs> that you are priestesses you know <laughs> this is this is uh, an essential part of your character to be connected to the spirit of nature and to be able to uh, speak with the true voice of uh, of natural phenomena and 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 that that if anyone's going to be able to 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 preach the spiritual truth it's going to be the women who are by their essence uh connected to it and and if you if you don't feel connected to it now surely you remember a time when you were before uh you know misogynist culture took that faculty away from you and you know you can recover it by running naked through the forests and you know if you have body shame don't worry because running naked through the forest is great exercise your body <laughs> uh, you know think you'll be beautiful later uh this is and and he really it's his complete hope that this will uh hit people where they live and inspire them to participate in this project mm. and so uh and i just uh, it doesn't seem i miss the truthiness of it yeah, it does seem like again like he's really worked himself up into a, a <laughs> sort of attempt at poetry to some extent here. It's um, nice, like I do yeah. like it, and there is a there is something about it that make does make me think that he realizes that it's like uh, he can't speak for women; they need to stand up and they need to be able to speak for themselves, and they need to be able to. Um, take action on their own behalf without having to be dependent on men to be providing all of that for them. But clearly men have to be able to do what they can as well in order to facilitate this kind of a, a situation. But inevitably he is uh, doing the man thing of kind of defining what the situation is. And- defining what the role is for sure, because if the woman becomes the leader of the church, then it leaves man to become uh, to remain the leader of the state or that man there's there's uh again i haven't marked out these quotations as thoroughly as i've marked them out in other places but he does talk about the the roles being uh particular that um uh that men serve this rational scientific function and then men then women speak for the zeitgeist or the spirit the world spirit or something mm-hmm. um uh and uh, he's really, he's really kind of on his knees, saying, "Please, please, please, come and fulfill this function again." Uh, and you know, even if uh, the women do come to his call and fulfill his function, it's unclear to me that in you know 1946 or whatever it is um, that they will be really heard in large numbers Mm. uh i think in the late part of the 19th century things were going better with the spirit knocking and all this stuff uh but um when all that stuff was debunked it maybe became harder (laughs) in the 40s and 50s for women to have the courage to come forward and do this job because it seems like an especially oppressive 
time. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like uh, uh, looking at this in these terms, uh, we, uh, as going back to Nietzsche again, it's like we dealt with a transvaluation of values in the early uh, Christian world where they were turning things on their heads and uh, you had uh, to the point where, you know, uh, women in Roman families and whatnot were becoming Christians and completely dedicating themselves to even just chastity. And that became a real problem because they started worrying about uh, population, not being able to maintain population um, and that sort of thing. So it was literally turning its the world on its head in that in those times and now that's a big part of the problem that he's trying to allude to i think is that we need a new transvaluation of values which we have been seeing since um voltaire and since uh, the birth of freedom in his estimation and uh, it it's kind of not really been working out totally over those couple of hundred years and it still needs a lot of work to be done and it really does mean a transvaluation of values so changing the way that we um, are predisposed to think about things and to interact with things. So like for women to be able to take uh, take this active role that he's talking about, take this full take this fully, it means changing uh, the world that as it has been structured towards the success of men and the way that men work. Uh, in we need to we would need to completely change that transvalue uh, these values that the world is based on and it's going to be you know it's not it's not like something that's going to be able to happen overnight i think that feminism in this period i mean he says uh somewhere like you know you guys aren't crazy you're expressing something true mm-hmm. and by you aren't crazy i think he means feminism <laughs> I think he's pointing to a a popular uh, movement that's taking place. But I think feminism in this period is really about saying that that women have just as many sort of, quote unquote, male virtues as men do, because, you know, men have gone to war, to world war at at least once and um, 46. Uh, Yeah, they've gone to world war twice. um, And so women have had to take domestic jobs, factory positions, labor positions, uh, in, in important jobs in industry that, that men sort of, again, I'll do scare quotes, should be doing. But of course, all the young men, men folk who might take entry-level jobs are now overseas. Um, and then both times returning from, uh, uh, from, from war, men have wanted their jobs back, but the women have been doing them just as well. Uh, and uh, and never mind all the people that have grown up uh, while a generation's away at war. So the hyper hyper saturated workplace, not only uh, returning soldiers wanting jobs, maturing young men wanting jobs, women already in those jobs. Uh, so this is where you have things like the high school movement that say like, oh please 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 just stay children for another five years while we work this out. <laughs> everyone should be educated. I know. Let's everyone should be educated. That's a great idea. <laughs> Um, uh, and so, um, 
but the the power of the feminist movement in this period is of saying like no women uh women can drive women can do math women can lift things <laughs> uh women women uh can participate in industry you got the rosie the riveter figure and uh, mm-hmm. uh various things like this so for him to go hard on gender essentialism i think now there's room for gender essentialism uh, but but at, at this time it was maybe an un, would have maybe been an unpopular move. Do you see any other thing in here that talks about why um, women are are the antidote? Does the whole thing hinge on this like women as the priestly class thing, or is there another is there another move that's made to support this? Well, I think it's um, to me it's it's connected to the same thing he was talking about in the previous chapter, where uh, we're not dealing with uh, certain things, we're repressing certain things inside of ourselves, and so I think he's dealing with this uh, difficulty of, of trying to eliminate this repression. Mm-hmm. So I think I think he sees, I get the impression that he sees men as exemplary of the intellectual side of things and women as exemplary of the more subconscious and feel space kind of uh, uh, aspect of things. And together they represent a whole unit rather than, uh, you know, um, where we're expecting everybody to just live in this. And this is why I think he has problems with positivists, for instance, because mm-hmm. they are cutting out massive swaths of the universe just by virtue of looking at things purely empirically. Here's the uh, quotation I was looking for, which I think is the part that su- supports what you're saying now. Uh, the woman is the priestess, the guardian of the mystery, Sybil of the unconscious, and prophetess of dreams. She stands co-equal with her mate, who is the chieftain, the hunter, the thinker, and the doer. Together they balanced each other until the catastrophe of the patriarchal age, arch-typified by the monosexual monster Jehovah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, this this idea, I think, is a problem, problematic one. Uh, her mate, the chieftain, hunter, thinker, and doer. Like, yeah. you know, hunter, fine, you know, maybe... Uh, um, Artemis was the hunter. Uh, Artemis was the hunter, but... You know, if you want to talk about, like, jobs, um, that's in one way problematic because, like, people want tend to want to see uh, gender equity in all areas, you know. Let's have more women in the military and more, you know, and, mm-hmm. and females are underrepresented in the sport of hunting or something. But that, to me, seems like less of a problem than this question of real political power where uh, he says that men are... Not only the chieftains, but also the thinkers and the doers. Like, yeah. women are incapable of thinking. <laughs> I know, there's, like, heavy implications here. But uh, uh, and, but the, the, and then the, the women in this picture are priestesses, guardians of the mysteries, sibyls of the un- unconscious, and prophetesses of dreams. So it's like a female... It almost uh, sounds like honorary positions instead of... No, I think he thinks they're important. Oh, yeah, they absolutely. Would be, uh, but it's it's like a female uh, priesthood to um, as an antidote to the male priesthood of the last 2,000 years. So mm-hmm. uh, an exaltation of... A way to exalt the sex instinct by putting the symbol of the sex instinct at the, at the yeah front it seems like he's picture. fumbling awkwardly towards some kind of an idea of equality but it's not quite 
uh, yeah. crystallized. Um, equality, not parity. Like, you know, yeah. that, the, that the value that rather than saying um, a woman is as valuable as a man, recognizing like what he thinks a woman's value actually is and saying that 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 value is uh is as important as, as yeah again part of a whole values. rather than you know um rather than just them being treated exactly the same way we have two parts of an overall whole that he's envisioning uh he's also going to see women as the gatekeepers of sex that men pursue and women sort of play goalie um and uh and so um by being better goalies uh <laughs> they will uh select better uh they they will select better men and uh and the the sexual selection piece of uh of evolution uh will tend to produce a more robust future generation by just excluding you know degraded uh this is like a prevalent thing all through the early 20th century eh? this whole idea of uh i mean i i, I hardly even really want to get into it but <laughs> just the the whole idea that like you know selection and uh, how that ends up producing a better race overall it's just kind of a uh, yeah i mean people... by today's standards it's really really obvious how prevalent this was and how transfixed people seem to be in that period of time with the idea that you could somehow control the way that the race is going to progress by selection of breeding uh so uh my my joke about this is that everyone who owns a purebred dog is a eugenicist <laughs> um uh but uh the way that it the way that these uh i mean i think eugenics is probably inherently problematic i don't think there's an application uh where you could really morally justify the approach <laughs> um uh but the the applications that have been tried are the worst possible <laughs> of all <laughs> applications you know like rather than doing uh, selective breeding the way you you would do with dogs you just do genocide <laughs> uh, it's not like hey you guys are both really smart maybe you should get together uh, you know mm. perhaps your offspring would be equally smart and then that would be really neat it's like no let's just uh sterilize everyone with a birth defect or, and uh and put jews in concentration camps like and and based on sort of uh false premises like that blonde hair is a morphogenic characteristic that uh will produce um better people like that blonde hair is associated with other types of fitness or something mm -hmm. because it's a recessive gene and so that must be a symbol of other great genes that could also be recessive it's like really really bad politics really really bad science really bad practice just based on like a fundamental stupidity i think this is better because um it's not a large-scale eugenics program. It's individual women being more selective about the types of mates they take on. Mm -hmm. uh, um, it's sort. It's sort of. He's a. It's a better understanding of how sexual selection works with individuals naturally selecting traits that they actually find more appealing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and 
if he just thinks that women should be tougher about that and, you know, learn to use birth control so that, uh, you know, um, not that he, this is not something where he's finger waving at women like you should learn to use birth control. He's saying that, you know, birth control should be legal. Yeah, so that women have fewer unwanted <laughs> pregnancies and, and like and, maybe maybe socially uh, acceptable instead of uh, completely uh, shamed and whatnot. That's right. Um, and he thinks this will. Uh, and he, so he thinks that having having strong women will mean they select strong men and having a little bit more sexual autonomy in terms of uh, being able to be more promiscuous and use birth control and. Uh, you know, practice sex with different partners before marriage so that they don't end up stuck with the first guy they meet will naturally lead to a a more robust second generation because the sexual selection piece will will be there. So I don't think this is a eugenics project, but I think it I think you're right to point at eugenics projects as being <laughs> sort of adjacent to this. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think he's really talking about appropriate Darwinian sexual selection. And I, I think that's it. I think it's just like women are naturally more suited to be priests. And if they're stronger priests, then uh, they'll mate with stronger men and then society will be more robust overall. Yeah, and I mean, he refers back to uh, a previous time, like the age of ISIS, uh, going by that, uh, we, we touched on that in our previous discussion as well, the idea of like uh, the Aeons and Thelema and uh, the Age of Isis was before this dark Age of Osiris that uh, he's complaining about. And so the Age of Isis, he emphasizes, was not a matriarchy, but an equality. And uh, that's something that he wants to regain. That's right. Um, And he says that every patriarchal religion is a self-contradictory monstrosity. They are dogmatic creeds that shift like straws in the wind of the intellect. Upon this shifting structure, man has failed. He knows the futility of such artificial systems, but he fights for them with all the sick fury his frustration can generate. Uh, yes. And so if we have a, um, a female priest who's, more cor- who's not only more connected to nature, but importantly much less likely to have misogynistic attitudes towards sex mm-hmm. um, than culture as a whole will be healthier in terms of the type of sex that it has and be less controllable by uh, false authorities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the second half of this chapter, the, uh, um, the, the attempt to sort of give some understanding to the condition of women and endorse to the degree that he can uh, before becoming a gender essentialist. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he tries to, he tries to sympathize with the, the female condition as he finds it. Uh, perhaps we should do just a little bit of that just for the sake of completeness. Just out of curiosity, just uh, uh, what is a gender essentialist? I mean, well, um, uh, let's say, um, so that you believe that you that there's something essential that you're born with. So there's the nature versus nurture question. What are we born with versus what's nurtured into us? Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're born with some things. Obviously, some things are nurtured into us. Uh, all of feminism in the first, basically throughout the 20th century, hindered on this anti-essentialist argument. You know, people 
up to quite late, believed that women were like one thing and men were like something else. Um, and so there were types of work that were appropriate for women and types of work that were appropriate for men. And those things were not cultural. They were not about upbringing or socialization. They were essential to the birth of uh, a woman. And there could be outliers where, um, where uh, you know, a woman could be born very manly or conditioned towards manliness as she matured. Um, but really, the, the, in the greater percentage of cases, uh, femininity really did mean one thing by its essence, and masculinity meant something else by its essence. And the progress of, of uh, feminism in the 20th century meant saying, uh, like Simone de Beauvoir, one is not born but becomes a woman. So anything that is really feminine uh, over and above sexual reproduction um, is cultured into you. So if a woman can't do math, it's because there's something wrong with the way we teach math to women. To women. If uh, women are bad drivers, it's because uh, they're anxious around driving because everyone thinks they're bad drivers. <laughs> if women are better at child rearing, it's because uh, they're usually un thought to be unemployable and so spend most of their time doing child rearing. Um, and so, if, if so, um, feminist the progress of feminism during this period is to say that like that like no no it's just that the culture is sick and if we change the culture then we'll generally improve the condition of women. So we think is it fair to consider this feminism um, that we're talking about uh, as being a form of transvaluation of values? Um, I think it might be it it might be an attempt to require that to say that like um uh because if if our inherent beliefs about something changes then hopefully our approach to that thing changes mm -hmm. um i don't know if it changes what we value because if what it does is make women more like men um then we're still putting primacy on male virtues. We're just saying that women have them too and that there's nothing essentially male about them. Mm -hmm. And it does seem like yeah. from going back to the text here, um, it seems like the uh, what would be needed, I, I think I guess I mentioned that already, is that it's, it's kind of a transvaluation of uh, some of these male, uh, seeing some of these male traits as necessary and basing society around those male uh, what are seen as male traits. If you were going to reevaluate what you value and like really value child rearing, um, then you would say then like men who chose to do child rearing uh, would not be uh, would not be pitied or you know or thought of or, or thought of as like in an cute light or, or like, something like that. or like even like oh wow good for you you're staying home with the boy you know mm. uh whereas this is women can go and do work and they can be employed and they can draw an income and that makes them just as valuable as men and you know if women choose to stay home with the child that's a, a an appropriate choice as well because somebody needs to raise the kids um, 
but it still values values uh, um, work in a workplace over work in the home. And you can see that because if a man chooses to work in the home while the wife goes to the office all day, uh, then that's seen as like weird, a weird aberration. Mm -hmm. So I don't think this is a, a, a transvaluation of values yet. I think it's um, uh, something that happens at the level of... Um, of metaphysics where like in our ontology, we no longer have femininity and masculinity, uh, except as, uh, as culture. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, uh, Parsons, uh, wants to find a way to do feminism that really transvaluates values that says, no, no, women are women. They have these classical female virtues and maybe they aren't good in politics, but their contribution is in some ways more important than the contribution of men, uh, because it, at least in this age, because it will um, alleviate this massive cultural sickness we've been suffering from. Um, I'm just going to read paragraph five of this because I think it shows not his philosophical argument, but his argu his moral argument for mm -hmm. why women should take this on. I shall speak to you of men. Men desire three things in a woman, a mother greater than themselves, a wife less than themselves, and a lover equal with themselves. Against the mother they are in revolt, the wife they hold in contempt, the lover ever eludes them. And I think this is correct. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, um, I, I'm confused about the things that he says of women. Uh, not that I'm confused by them, but I'm sort of hostile towards them because I think they're maybe demeaning. <laughs> uh, but this this way in which uh, men regard women and, and, and the kinds of problematic that it is, I think he's right on the money there. Mm -hmm. um, but then he says uh, that any negative treatment that women receive, you know, because of this conflicted hope that men have about like, oh, I want a woman to be these three different things, someone equal, someone lesser, someone superior, and I, I have different feelings and I want one woman to be all, <laughs> to be all three of those things. And, uh, and, you know, when she is the wrong thing at the wrong time, I react with uh, violence and frustration. He says it's not because... Um, it's 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 they're not they're being abusive because they love uh and i think that that's right too you know like we never we never hate but that we first love like the hatred is a response is is humiliation and disappointment right so there's a love object that fails to live up to our absolutely impossible <laughs> uh, uh expectations for the love object and then and then men react uh violently uh, and the solution is for uh, men to change their expectations yeah, I, think. I mean he's he's saying these are bewildered frightened children playing games against the dark that's right and we all know women love children so, <laughs> and so they should forgive men for their incompetence and uh and become priests so that they can teach men to not have this uh sick trifold uh conflicted attitude again 
you know, modern people might think making this a woman's job is problematic. Why doesn't a, a, a man go to therapy and work on himself? <laughs> um, because the only therapist available is Freud, and he's just as psychotic about sex <laughs> as everyone else. Uh, so this is why we maybe another reason why we need women to do the job because uh, the Freudians are uh, maybe not helpful. But uh, but yes, yeah, so... I mean, there is something to be said about the fact that, yeah, men aren't going to be able to solve this one. We do need women to be empowered and to be taking charge with their own their own position on things. And it's kind of hard for a man to prescribe the solution in the absence of that. Yeah, and it's, it's uh, ouroboric, kind of. Yeah. It eats its own tail because... Uh, you want to say that uh, that men can't make solutions on behalf of women, so women need to step up. But uh, how do women step up in a very misogynist culture where they're yeah. immediately disregarded? So um, this is why I was mentioning that whole idea of like we need some transvaluation of values in regard to the uh, I guess what we can describe as the patriarchal. Uh, approach to things because that needs to change in order to make the space in order to make the ground fertile for women to be able to completely flourish you were saying before about how important it was to listen to women and how like oh it'd be nice to have some women on even mm -hmm. <laughs> you know uh and uh i think what what we say is like oh a bunch of you know, middle-aged white guys sitting around talking about girls. Like, yeah. I don't want to listen to another one of these podcasts. <laughs> I think what we say is that we're, you know, not talking about the female condition. We're talking about the text. Yeah. And so if we're talking about the female condition, I, I think maybe the conversation is over. <laughs> <laughs> Unless there's something else you wanted to pull out of here. No, that I, I mean, I do think this is uh, what I'm saying, though, is is relating to the way that he's presenting the material mm -hmm. as well. It, it is it's essentially it's more that I'm commenting on uh, something within the material that does need to be addressed. Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, but yeah, moving on, though. After this point, he goes into a little bit of a, uh, a reference to history again. So throughout the, the paper, he's uh, been alluding to, uh, I guess you could say he's been alluding to the transition from the Middle Ages into the, uh, the period of Voltaire and the various uh, leaders of the U.S. government who uh, helped to forward to give birth to and forward the cause of freedom, which was a uh, transition out of the Middle Ages and uh, uh, going into the modern age and where we need to be moving from here in order to further the cause of freedom, which will require strength and courage and not passivity. We haven't achieved freedom. We haven't created a stable freedom yet. Uh, so yet again, he's referring to that transition um, he's talking about, uh, uh, he, he's got this idea that before cities arose, um, men were in a better position. Men were, there was a man, there were men for a season, as he says in the ancient world. Then came Christianity on which he hangs all of his problems. And, uh, Christianity transvalued those values and made things, uh, um, as Nietzsche would put it, uh, flipped society on its head. And uh, since then, we've been suffering the consequences of that. Yeah, he makes a mention of uh, the Faust. Faust was the prototype of the Middle Ages, but not the Faustus of whom Kit Marlowe tells, who is, uh, he, I guess he made a 
play based on Faust, but he's talking about a darker Faust, Gilles de Ray, who betrays the maid in his lust for power, and the maid being Joan of Arc. So Gilles de Ray was uh, um, fighting alongside Joan of Arc, and uh, then later on, after she had been long uh, burnt at the stake and whatnot, uh, he went about his aristocratic life and ended up torturing children, or at least being uh, uh, accused and uh, tortured into confession and and, and killed as, as a result of... Or I don't know if he was in prison for life or killed, I can't remember, but uh, I think he was killed because of apparently stealing the children of of the uh, the poor people and uh, torturing them and, and killing them and whatnot for his own um, amusement. That's what's meant by he descends to the horror in his cellars. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, okay, so that's helpful because when I was reading this, yeah, uh, Marlo, uh, Marlo's most famous play is the Dr. Faust's play. There is a German Faust by Goethe, which I thought this was referring to at first, the darker Faust by, mm-hmm. uh, but it's this doesn't say Goethe, this is Gilles de Ray, and so it's helpful to know uh, what he means by this, and that's that's clearer because he's saying it it goes back to everything he was saying about the the worst possible outcomes of the sex anxiety mm-hmm. imposed uh, upon people by the Catholic Church um, and by other churches by this time that. Uh, um, I guess his um, hypothesis is that uh, Gilles de Ray might not have been what he was if he had been able to express his uh, sexual curiosity more freely uh, uh, rather than having to become like, you know, an untouchable aristocrat. And now I can do whatever I want and just be, be crazy and dangerous. Yeah, it's almost like he's a representative of uh, that that product when you mm-hmm. have aristocracy ruling over... Uh, the plebs using this method of mm-hmm. sexual repression, you end up with monsters growing in the dark. It's a better way to parse it, because say that this guy is a um, arm of the law that commits this crime rather than a uh, uh, a passive product of mm-hmm. culture. And then he goes through a, a series of um, people who he's referencing who I, I suppose are, are carrying the concept of freedom forward from Voltaire, but uh, ultimately they essentially fail in the task, I think. I, I mean, he says in the end there, uh, a beautiful vision fallen like a house of cards. You creators of the new age who dare not speak, think or move without permission from the military, you unfettered titans who will hang for speaking across one border, where is your new world? Champions, where is freedom? What treasure have we lost? We must turn to women for that answer. There's an amusing little mistake here. He says, we we thought science would save us. That, in quotes, brave new world of Huxley, Darwin, and H.G. Wells. Uh, the somehow he read Brave New World and thought that it was optimistic. <laughs> it isn't. The Brave New World uh, that science promises is uh, bad. And um, uh, maybe that's what he means. But here it sounds like that the promise of the Brave New World failed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when the promise of the Brave New World was just that it would fail. Mm-hmm. Um 
and uh, yes, we we turn to uh, uh, we turn to women for the answer for all the reasons we've already said. And that's where he gives the key that lies back ten thousand years ago in the age of ISIS. Mm-hmm. And that's where he makes the reference: it wasn't a ma- matriarchy; it was mistakenly referred to as a matriarchy, but it was actually an equality. Yeah, and I guess that's yeah. We'll get into a lot of what we've already been talking about here. I f- I feel like we're and and maybe it's because of the structure of the piece rather than anything we're doing. Um, but I feel like in this in going over this kind of summation, uh, we're we're running over a lot of trodden ground now. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, unless there's anything really new to say. I think we should find a way out, maybe a quotation to finish on or something. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. I mean, he gives a, another little parallel uh, history to go with the previous one of uh, some of the men who carried, uh, I imagine he's trying to say, or carrying freedom, the idea mm-hmm. of freedom forward. Uh, he gives a, um, a parallel with women who were poisoners. Uh, and I don't know exactly... Um, exactly what the motivation here is, except that they were trying to fight against this uh, patriarchy and rebel against it, because the poisoners were uh, sort of witch women, as he was he's referring to them, who were, we have Messalina, who was the wife of Emperor Claudius, and uh, was accused of licentiousness, and uh, I think of a, of poisoning, attempting to poison him, and that sort of thing. And uh, then we have some from the Middle Ages, where it was Tofana, uh, or the beginning of the Re- or the, or the Renaissance period, or whatever. Tofana, Lavoisier, and De Brunvilliers, uh, who uh, he says raised revenge to a high art. Yeah, so he admires this instinct, this revenge instinct. And he they were poisoners of husbands who were abusive. Yeah, and I I think that he's um telling, you know, his audience here, his intended audience that he understands the instinct towards revenge. But later on he'll 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 quickly say that um know that all revenge is revenge on the self and the most terrible is taken by the frigid woman. Count her in the tens of millions. The curse lies in the failure of her mate to be a man, and her failure to be true to herself. Uh, so even though he admires this instinct to revenge, uh, and, and, and thinks that these five examples of women, including the maid of Orléans, uh, Jeanne d'Arc, um, are, are admirable figures, He's going to remind his reader that these they're admirable figures who came to a bad end mm-hmm. and that uh, a- any path to success is a path of, of, of forgiveness and, and requires working with men and teaching them uh, a, a healthier attitude towards sex. You don't just uh, poison your abuser and hope that he dies. You have to teach him not to abuse you or something. Which, I mean, maybe some people in our audience are going to think that that's uh, victim blaming. I don't think he means in specific cases. I think he means as a cultural project. Yeah, it does seem like he's trying to make a point of, again, uh, we need a transvaluation of values. Yeah. We need to keep reinforcing that. Yeah. These women who were who were being like really, uh, or like at least the example you gave of uh, Miss Linnea, who was... Um, 
you're saying she was in a, a bad condition with her husband and being sort of tormented. Uh, she did the right thing <laughs> by <laughs> killing him, uh, but uh, destroyed herself in the process. So, like, maybe if, you're, if your spouse is really abusive, because like he says, we need to amend divorce laws so you can get out of there. You know, you don't uh, stick around and, and teach directly the... <laughs> the uh, the try to take a teaching role in a hopeless case but that is a cultural project that's where this this kind of forgiveness and and support and mutual support comes in yeah i mean the uh i mean there's that mention you had made of uh and the most terrible is that taken by the frigid woman i feel like that frigid woman comes off as that has like a a lot of baggage that term nowadays because uh it's uh tends to mean like somebody who's cold and and uh distance sexually and it sounds like he's saying this in a bad light but it's exactly what he's saying he's saying uh that women and i think this is coming out of like the victorian age of puritanism with uh, the idea of women having to feeling it necessary to repress their sexuality and hide it behind uh, long bl black dresses and whatnot, and uh, and he's emphasizing the fact that we need to change that. The most one of the, the most famous uh, Greek comedy, Lysistrata, is about um, women who protest the war by refusing to have sex with their husbands, mm -hmm. and um, and then there's this ongoing critique of feminism, which I think is a bad critique. Um, that says, uh, you know, women uh, go too far. It's fine to fight for freedom, but you don't want to oppress men in the process. And uh, I think that's what he's pointing at here, kind of, that um, freedom means freedom for all people and that what we're fighting against is specifically the major, major problems in culture are caused by uh, this... Uh, sick attitude towards sex. And so if you try to be lesistrata, you don't solve the problem. You're just expressing the same sick attitude uh, towards sex. The point is not to uh, swear off men entirely and, you know, go be a man in the workplace and never have children because culture values male virtues more. The point is to uh, for Parsons is to more fully realize yourself yeah, it's as a woman and the value of the value of woman and uh, and yes and so frigidness is a kind of revenge but it's also a, a, a revenge against the self because it, it exacerbates the problem of sex anxiety mm -hmm. and then we have a brief little uh, strength is not born it is gained by understanding and overcoming. Go free, sing the old wild song. Evoe, io, evoe yakchus, yo pan, pan, evoe, Babylon. And so there's making direct reference to, reference to Babylon and pan. So this is where he's really coming up into his uh, um, big heralding of Babylon at the uh, completion of the paper in a few paragraphs. Mm-hmm. And yeah, some of this is territory that we've already gone over. So like what you were saying about go free and joyously run naked and learn to appreciate your own beauty, even if you don't feel beautiful. Yeah. Not not just learn to appreciate your own beauty, but realize that running naked will make you more beautiful. 
because uh, uh, exercise is healthy. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the way that you uh, feel and uh, think is going to affect the way that you are. It's going to manifest. <laughs> That's pretty much what he's hinting at. Yeah. And, and then he gets into the uh, woman is the priestess of the irrational world. Irrational. But how enormously important and how dangerous because it is unadmitted or denied. We do not want to be drunken, murderous, frustrated, poverty-stricken, and miserable without cause. These conditions are not reasonable or scientific, quote-unquote, and yet they do exist. We say that we do not want war, but war seems a psychological necessity. Wars will continue until that need is otherwise fulfilled. So we're getting into a lot of this type of thing, like referencing the fact that, yeah, we say we don't want war but it seems to be a necessity and it seems to be an expression of something and so if we were pressing these feelings and these uh, um, parts of ourselves then they're still going to find some expression that's a bit funny because i mentioned liz estrada earlier and about the frigid woman and stuff uh the uh, and the freudian idea that we already talked about about how all projects soever are sublimated sex instinct so um the the solution to the problem of war is to have more sex, not less. Hmm. To have a healthier attitude uh, towards personal relationships, so there's less anxiety, which can express itself in conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think there are wars over resources and wars over <laughs> uh, other types of political disputes. It's not all just like frustrated men hitting each other with sticks, <laughs> um, but one wonders if there isn't uh, some element of that, you know, like we have all this energy that needs to go into a project and, uh, uh, you know, wars for population control where people get uh, a peasantry and underclass, you know, breeds too much and gets out of control. So aristocrats agree to have a little war (laughs) 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 to to siphon some people off. uh, I don't know if it still happens, but it's a documented thing from our deep history. Hmm. Now, he's going to say uh, this is all kind of in service as well to the woman girt with the sword that uh, uh, appears in the Book of the Law. And he's going to move on to that. Woman, put away unworthy weapons. Put away malice and poison, frigidity and childishness. Draw the two-edged sword of freedom and call for a man to meet you in fair combat. A man fit to be your husband and a father to your eagle brood. Call upon him, test him by the sword, and he will be worthy of you. Together, you will be archetypes of the new race. So it's worth going back to the title. Freedom is a two-edged sword, and the two edges being freedom for myself and freedom for all others. Again, this sort of bad criticism of feminism to say like, oh, women go too far, they want to oppress men and not just be free themselves. I think that's illiterate. Um, uh, but there is a question that of when a revolutionary group who's used, you know, freedom of expression, freedom of organization, freedom of, uh, you know, various uh, uh, freedoms to uh, justify their uh, ability to to speak and to organize and, and politicize on on behalf of a of a specific cause that when that that group starts to see themselves as the as the ruling class 
any dissent against any any criticism of the hard victories they've won, uh, they're going to want to use those same same tools of uh, you know anti anti speech anti of mm. anti liberalism uh, to clamp down on on criticism. So it wouldn't be that feminists are trying to. Uh, uh, restrict the freedom of men i think that's stupid and illiterate but that any revolutionary group that attains a certain measure of success where it becomes uh where where their values become enshrined in the ruling class they then become hostile towards freedom generally because they don't want anyone to be able to be critical Mm -hmm. of them the way they were critical of the previous power structure yeah any group that has to define itself by its opposition to something uh either transforms when the time is right or um, has to really reinforce that opposition. But I think uh, Parsons' criticism uh, is the less refined criticism of saying, like, now that we have women in the workplace, let's not let the workplace become feminine and oppressive. Have Have the women take up the sword and fight for everyone's freedom and work together with men to improve the condition of culture more generally. Um, and, uh, uh, and that's where he leaves it. Evoy Babylon, to you, O unknown woman, is the sword of freedom pledged. And that's the end of the paper. Uh, thank you, Darren. That was fun. Yeah, thank you. And I'm glad we were able to uh, complete this and come back to it. I'm glad we didn't just leave it hanging like <laughs> that, because there was a lot of interesting stuff to cover in those last few chapters there. Yeah, no, um, I like it. I think it's a good paper. I am inspired by some of the poetic language, criticism aside. I mean, people will differ on political issues and social issues and stuff like that, so... Um, yeah, and any, I don't think any, that differing any, on something should prevent people from speaking and, and expressing. I yeah. think it's important to express. Any complaint I have about Parsons' incomplete and overprescriptive brand of, of feminism is not a, a negation of the value and the, the, the general beauty of the piece. I mean, so much of it is so uh, feels so nice in the mouth, even. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And the problem he points at, or the, the series of problems he's trying to point at, are, are real problems i think and it's uh even and and there's there's truthiness in a lot of what a lot of what he uh he he points at yeah and you wanted to avoid on the first in first talking about this just sort of saying well is this still true today yes it is and you know (laughs) that sort of thing but it is it is continuously important and um relevant it's not that i wanted to avoid talking about that i thought i just thought that that might be the only thing yeah we, to say. we didn't want it to just be i that. didn't realize how expansive it was going to get in mm-hmm. the, the the third and fourth chapter because the the first chapter really is just a political analysis of a condition where people are sexually repla- repressed and that makes them repressed more generally and, and yeah, the the following couple of chapters uh, did feel very flowery and kind of like they were saying in, you know, a hundred words what the, could have been said in five, that kind of thing. But no, that wasn't the case at all. There was a lot to uh, explore there. Well, it was difficult to pull the arguments, the, um, the way in which sex becomes a weapon for the church and the way in which women become the solution for this mm-hmm. problem. Uh, I think in the first case, it's expressed sort of over too wide a breadth so you have to pull quotes from lots of places Mm -hmm. uh, in order to organize the argument and in the second place it's so 
counterintuitive to what it's it's, it's frankly what I, I think outside of the Overton window now you you wouldn't be able to talk about this except in reference to a paper because it just seems like abhorrent and misogynist mm. and so for a person to come from a f feminist perspective and express things that now seem misogynist uh was it just took a long time for me to wrap my head around mm -hmm. um uh, so those two those two arguments were um i wouldn't have been able to understand them uh, a month ago when we recorded the first part now i think i do yeah, got a very much uh, different perspective on the overall paper <laughs> now than uh, after having done a first reading mm -hmm. of it. Well, thank you very much, Mike, for joining me again on this one. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Darren. Love is the law. Love under will. Thank you for joining us. Look for Toronto Thelema on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube watch for events in the city, and join us again in the darkly splendid abodes.